Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Callum here with a quick message from our wonderful, wonderful sponsor. Your home away from home is waiting for you at each of the resident hotels in London and Liverpool. You can enjoy excellent rooms in exceptional locations with heartfelt hospitality. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, thoughtfully chosen destinations within thriving cities. The Resident offers relaxed enclaves from which you can venture out to experience the city your way with The Resident's insider knowledge. Speaking of insider knowledge, Whitehall Sources starts now. This is more about the volume of um, home ownership. Uh, you know, we've set a target of 70% home ownership. We have achieved that in the past. That's what we'd like to get to. For that reason, we need to put the target back up. But I don't think that on its own will be enough. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. This week, coming to you from the Highlands of Scotland, um, where I probably still have morning voice on. Um, it's Thursday the 18th of May. I'm, I'm, I'm on a slight holiday, but nothing will keep me away from having a conversation with Kirsty Buchanan, who used to work with Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning. What's the weather like up there? Well, that's a great question. It's not too bad. Um, I'm looking out the window now. It's quite grey. It's been fresh the last few days. And by fresh, I do mean jumper and jacket. And yesterday, we were stood on the Glenfinnan Viaduct, which is the um, Harry Potter fans will be aware of the Glenfinnan Viaduct because it's the big bridge, the big viaduct bridge that the Hogwarts Express goes over when Harry's car is flying around. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but I've learned this. And um, we stood there in the rain for about an hour to watch the train go over the thing. Can I make so, a confession? I have never read a Harry Potter book, nor have I watched any of the films. Well, so I've I've never I've never read a book. Um, I have watched one of the films, then I got violently food poisoning sick afterwards. Um, that was mainly because I'd eaten ice cream that had thawed at Pizza Hut a little while beforehand, which was entirely my own fault. I'm not placing any responsibility on Pizza <laughs> Hut. It was entirely my fault. Anyway, so we did that in the rain yesterday. 
Um, and today is distinctly average. So there we are. It's all good, though. How are you? Are you well? Yes, I'm uh, very well and talking to you from the sunny south coast. Lovely, 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 lovely. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for being with us on Whitehall Sources. Uh, make sure you follow and subscribe if you're not already. This is your essential insider look at politics and a life in Whitehall, in and around Whitehall indeed, with those who have lived it, been there, done that and breathed it. Uh, today, Kirsty, we want to focus on, well, we want to pull a few strands together really as our kind of um, idea in terms of what's been happening over the last few days politically and what it may or may not mean for the general election when it comes. I want to read you this first of all from The Times. This is from Oliver Wright, the policy editor at The Times. Britain needs a closer trading relationship with the European Union to escape its, quote, doom loop of low growth and high taxes. This is Sir Keir Starmer uh, pledging to reopen Boris Johnson's Brexit deal with the EU. He was speaking in London, telling business leaders that in-government Labour would, quote, fix the weaknesses in the current trade and cooperation agreement to give UK firms greater access to the European market. So I suppose there's a Brexit question to begin with here, and whether Keir Starmer doing this is going to tee up the next general election to be fought on basically the exact same fault lines as the previous one was fought. Uh, well, I think uh, the Conservatives will try and fight it in those terms and say that, you know, uh, I know they've rode back from it, but the mooted idea about giving EU citizens with settlement rights in Britain the right to vote um, and a closer, you know, a sector-by-sector -sector kind of relationship uh, with um, the EU means that, you know, by slow degrees, if you like, Labour are trying to walk Britain back into the European Union. Now, uh, those of us with memories slightly longer than a goldfish will remember that, that Jeremy Hunt uh, was the man that was largely thought to be behind a briefing not so long ago, also I think in the Times, uh, basically making the same point that actually you're going to have to have um, sector by sector deals because it remains an inconvenient truth that whilst obviously the Prime Minister is in Japan at the moment for the G7 summit, lauding our trading relationship with Japan, which is a good and strong one, our biggest trading partner remains uh, the EU. And also we've seen this week uh, Vauxhall uh, and other car companies now increasingly alarmed about the prospect of what they call, um, you know, uh, points of origin rules changing next year, which could lead to them having massive uh, tariffs uh, placed on vehicles that are exported out to Britain, so uh, out of Britain to EU. So, uh, you know, we need to start to have a mature relationship conversation about uh, our relationship with the EU. And I think one of the biggest kind of, uh, a big disservice uh, done uh, throughout this conversation about Brexit was the idea that it was a one-off event, that Brexit was kind of a big bang, once you were out, boom, you're out and that was it. It's always should have been, you know, uh, portrayed as, a, as an evolution. You're out. But once you're out, you know, you, you evolve into a new relationship. And some of that will be about entirely new industries, um, you know, the sort of AI industries, etc. you know, green industries, new technologies that are coming on board and how we trade with the EU, those. And some of them will be, you know, uh, traditional industries like, you know, car exports. They are mm. our EU is and will remain for the foreseeable future, our biggest trading partner. And... There was always going to be a trade-off in Brexit between, you know, uh, 
uh, getting out and, and, uh, and the mechanism by which you do that and how much friction that puts in your trading relationship with the EU. And that's what we're beginning to come up against the hard edge of that now. Mm. Um, and we're seeing industry start to say, actually, we want sector by sector deals. Just on the on the Brexit theme, then I suppose the other notable thing from this week was Nigel Farage on um, on the telly this week on Newsnight, saying that Brexit has failed, um, which is a, a claim that's been kind of rejected by those who are trying to make something of it, including the Prime Minister. Um, but he he said Brexit has failed. He, he hit out a useless Tories for mismanaging the UK's exit from the EU, and so the PM has pointed to new freedoms for farmers and overhaul of the agricultural sector as you know uh, highlighting a, a way that actually Britain has benefited and been boosted by uh, Brexit but just on some of the things you mentioned Kirsty Farage was saying business has been driven away from the country firms are being quote strangled in regulation um, that's the Daily Mail's write-up I should say and he said ministers hadn't delivered on Brexit and didn't rule a comeback to frontline party politics hooray how exciting oh, joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Nosferatu of British politics, isn't it? Nigel Farage, good grief. But I, there is something in this because obviously it goes without saying that he was the man, he was the cheerleader, he was the ringleader of, of the campaign for Brexit. He was the face of it, he was the voice of it. Um, I, I, he's been very critical of the Tories in terms of their implementation and perhaps there's something predictable about that, you know, I could have done it better is perhaps the, the underlying message. Um, but I just wonder if there's something in in this feeling of slight, slightly being disingenuous with, with, with what he campaigned for versus now his critique of it? Um, well, there were always two elements to Brexit, wasn't there? One was about sovereignty and one was about kind of, you know, the economy and economic growth. Um, and there are plenty of people that can and do argue that actually what fundamentally drove the Brexit vote wasn't about whether Britain would be better off in or out of Europe, economically speaking, um, but that it was to, you know, to coin the tedious old phrase, to take back control of its money, laws and borders um, and regain its own sovereignty and, and set its own course in life. Now, it's no uh, surprise that Farage has come out uh, recently because it comes off the back of... Um, uh, the Conservatives saying that actually they won't be able to implement what was one of Sunak's key leadership pledges, which was to repeal thousands and thousands of pieces of nasty EU legislation, which is holding back Britain and holding back growth. Now, actually, they've taken a look at that and decided that, that is uh, harder to implement than they thought at the rather heroic timetable they'd put in it um, of 2024. So, uh, so in essence, what, you know, Farage, I mean, the whole sentence of that probably should be for Farage, Brexit has failed because the Conservatives haven't implemented it properly. Um, you know, and that is the argument we've got at the moment. You know, is it is it a failure of implementation or is it the nature of the beast, if you like, that if you throw some friction up in your uh, main trading relationship, it's going to have a consequential impact on your economy. It's also going to have a consequential impact um, on uh, you know your workforce. Now, some of the issues we've also bedeviled with at the moment in terms of our economy, apart from a, uh, a kind of slow and sluggish growth in this country and pr slow productivity, um, is about our inability to access not skilled workers, but you know a labour force shortage across the piece. Now we've got, I think we've had this week um, reports about two million people being on long-term sick. We've had 
obviously the drain of over 50s leaving the workforce in COVID and, and not coming back again and Hunt's rather heroic attempt to draw the over 50s back into full-time work. Now, I think if you can afford to early retire, you think, yeah, yeah, no thanks. Mm. Um, so, uh, so some of us will have to work till we're 70. Yeah, I'm going right, to exactly, be working until Kingdom Come, I think. Yeah, but for but, but for for those of a certain age that were smart enough with their money, mm. uh, I can't see that you know your country needs you um, is is going to cut <laughs> it when you're on the golf course. But, <laughs> but, but but there we go. But but so it brings to to mind this kind of tension about productivity, uh, about trade, and about uh, you know migration and workforces. Now this also throws up the issue about not only have we seen this week Sunak sort of talking about. Um, and having to defend uh, failure to uh, to repeal EU laws, we've also seen Starmer on the hook mm. uh, over over his issues of, of a warmer relationship. Now, again, when Starmer had his leadership contest and he uh, came up with 10 pledges, which would have done Jeremy Corbyn proud and were just as Sunak's leadership pledges were designed to appeal in part to the right of his party, uh, uh, Starmers were designed to appeal to the left of his party. Um, he promised to uh, support free movement from Europe. Now, the the trick and the problem that Starmer's going to have now is to be able to argue into the election, look, you know, I don't agree with free movement anymore. Um, it's one of the many things I've ditched from my leadership platform. I don't agree with that, but I do think we should have a sector-by-sector sector better trading relationship. Now, that is cherry-picking. And mm. as anybody that worked under Theresa May's government will tell you, one thing the EU doesn't like is, you know, cake with cherry on top, right? You can't say, OK, I want all the benefits of frictionless trade with my made trading partner, but I want none of the obligations and none of the responsibilities. So I don't want free movement, thank you very much, but I do want, you know, frictionless trade in a sort of sector-by-sector way. I think that's going to be quite a hard trick for him to pull off from a, from a you know, from literally from a policy point of view. But also in the election, it allows... Uh, the Conservatives to open a flank and say, right, this is the thin end of the wedge. And before you know it, actually, he will be forced into a position of free movement and will be back to, you know, open borders, porous borders. Yeah, that does make me think. I, I wonder then if we should consider, give, in the run-up to a general election, what this all means for the uh, the manifesto of either party, because there are pledges galore, there are changes of heart galore, even at this point, and we can point to U-turns. In fact, on Wednesday at Deputy Prime Minister's Questions, Oliver Dowden suggested the, the Labour leader had had changed his mind on 30 things. He mentioned he said 30. So I can imagine, you know, um, there was a, a, an observation from Tim Shipman on Times Radio, which is, you know, we'll probably see a dossier of those 30 things at some point to highlight the fact that uh, Keir Starmer keeps changing his mind. And so I'm just wondering how, as an electorate, we can realistically engage with politicians and understand what they're, what they're promising, what they are promising to deliver at a general election, either at this stage, which I appreciate is quite far out in the grand scheme of everything, but also when it comes to manifesto writing, is that still going to be a crucial part of an election campaign? It's a, it's a fascinating point, actually, and we've seen, I think, last week, the uh, National Policy Forum, which is a great big glut, 86-page glut of ideas from the Labour Party, some of which will make, some of which won't, which is where obviously all this issue around votes for 16 and 17-year-olds and votes for settled EU citizens in the UK comes from. 
so we've seen that and obviously the Conservatives will be starting to work up their manifesto and there'll be polling and focus grouping and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, we live in a, uh, dare I say, a post-trust world. Hmm. Um, and particularly in Britain, given everything we've, we've, we've experienced over Partygate, etc. Hmm. We live in a post-trust world. Uh, cynicism about politics, I suspect, has never been higher. We have two main party leaders for whom honesty, transparency and integrity is their desired brand. And yet both parties will produce manifestos where I think if the public were to trouble themselves to read them, and I can't think that they'll all rush out to read them, it's mainly the preserve of lobby journalists, um, uh, that, 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 you know, and, and, and you know, people uh, within industry, stakeholders, etc., that, that mm. need to look at their relevant sections. But if the public looked at them, I think by and large, they'd think, you know, these are literally not worth the paper uh, that they're written on. Um, and I did a bit of research because I do like <laughs> to put some hard yards in. We love when you uh, do this. It's so, great. Yeah, so British Attitude Survey. Now, I'm going to test you on this, right? Okay. So, uh, I mean, I, in, in 1986, mm -hmm. um, so still age of Thatcher, um, the public were asked, you know, do you most, you know, do you mostly trust your government mm -hmm. um, and the result was guess you will find out my guess and the answer right after this everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We are so pleased that Whitehall Sources is your favourite podcast. Thank you for finding us. Our favourite hotel is The Resident, who have hotels in London and Liverpool. Don't just take our word for it, though, as trustworthy as sources as we might be. Take this review from Louisa from just a few weeks ago in January. She stayed in Covent Garden and said, Great location. Room was so comfortable and clean. Shower was the best we had mm. during our month in Europe. Close to shopping and restaurants and multiple tube stations too. Covent Garden is the perfect area to stay. And let's double source this, shall we? Because East Coast Will stayed at the resident in February and said, don't hesitate to book your stay here, especially if you plan to attend theatre events. It's a quiet, restful oasis, a relaxed enclave even in a very busy city. We are excited to return. 
So why not come to London, listen to Whitehall sources on the way, and stay at The Resident for the full London experience. You can book your stay in The Resident in London or Liverpool. Just click residenthotels.com. I would say probably yes, quite high, actually. Yeah, what, what, what percentage? Um, uh, 70, 70%. That's extraordinarily high. <laughs> I mean, bear in mind, this is the kind of, you know, a, a long haul into Thatcher in a highly divided country. Can you know I me. encourage you to I, go slightly lower than that? Yeah, yeah. I'm just adding drama, uh, which isn't like me. Uh, Gump may, it up. Maybe. Gump down from above. What, let's say 50. Let's say there was a split. Okay, right. So, so, so the percentage <laughs> of the public that mostly trusted their government was 40% in it. Okay, yeah. So in 2019, so this is before... Uh, party gate mm-hmm. uh, which you will you know remember had this you know seismic and perpetual no matter what uh, those at the National Conservative Conference will tell you <laughs> breaking public trust with Boris Johnson and that uh, that administration so this is before that that percentage had gone down to oh man well so was that 40 so down to 20 high 20s maybe Fifteen percent. Wow. Okay. Um, I did try and find a, a kind of post-party gate poll, uh, which sent me down all kinds of internet rabbit holes <laughs> yesterday. So if anybody can find it, I'd be, yeah. I'd be, I'd be very grateful. Um, and there's actually there's a field of study about the delivery of manifestos, right? And uh, what my what my research has discovered Karen, <laughs> is there's actually a huge perception gap from the public about what they think about manifestos and what they think about Prime Minister's promises uh, and actual, you know, delivery. So if you ask most people in this room, they go, oh, you know, manifestos aren't worth the paper they're written on, nothing in them is ever delivered, etc. So this field of study is called programme to policy linkage. And there was a study done uh, post-2017, uh, which was 20,000 campaign promises across 57 elections in 12 countries. And uh, the country with the highest kind of delivery rate uh, was the UK. Whoa. Um, and again, uh, if I can encourage you to have a guess. So this is, <laughs> this is policies that have been delivered in whole or in part. Okay. Right? Uh, so I think and it's important to put that slight caveat on it. So actually the policy to programme to policy linkage rate in mm. the UK of manifesto promises is what? Oh gosh, right, okay. Maybe a third. Do a third of policies make it? Around 30 to 33%? 85%. 85 is remarkably high. Yeah, 85%. Now that, again, with that caveat, that that is in whole or in part. Sure, now, but that possibly speaks to one of the morals of the podcast, which is governing is hard, actually. Getting things done is hard. But 85% is quite surprising. Yeah, now there's a, there's a, there's a reason for why that perception gap is... Uh, so big is that in large part a manifesto particularly like recent manifestos have been extraordinarily detailed and self-encompassing they will have hundreds of pledges in them um, and many of them are never recognised you know uh, by the public they don't they don't know they're there frankly so uh, a classic example of the 2017 manifesto um, which by the way even though Theresa May's uh, premiership was cut uh, short, 
uh, 84% of those manifesto promises had either been delivered or were in progress by 2019. Mm. 84%. So, but we're talking about things like, so on the one level, you know, a promise to publish, you know, maps of school buildings for parents was delivered. Uh, I mean, who knew, right? Um, I worked on the, you know, I worked on selling the 2017 manifesto. I read it and I didn't know that was in there. Um, But, you know, what does everyone remember about the 2017 manifesto? Well, they remember, you know, in the Theresa May premiership, they remember that Theresa May was the person that promised to bring net migration down to the tens of thousands. Um, And we will see next week how very, very far successive conservative leaders have have fallen from being able to get there i think the current estimate of net legal migration into this country is is expected to top 700,000 which is a record high and again i have to caveat that you know we've had a war in ukraine yeah. and hong kong and so there's very high you know levels but 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 to to put a promise on it which was always going to be uh, nigh on impossible to deliver and then so singularly failed to deliver it um, I mean, not even in COVID, <laughs> not even in COVID did we did we manage to hit tens of thousands. So they remember that. They remember, um, obviously, uh, getting Brexit done, through, getting Brexit through Parliament. Well, we didn't deliver on that either, and that's what mm. cost of the premiership. And then they also remember that um, ill-fated dementia tax. Um, you know, and so, so actually, you know, there are lots of things that are delivered, but what people remember are the big headline things. And the bigger the promise, the harder it is to deliver, the harder it is to deliver, you know, the more, you know, public backlash and the greater the memory when things, you know, aren't. I mean, if you think of all the main, uh, you know, uh, cynicism fueling pledges of recent years. We've got, you know, 350 million back to the NHS on the side of a Brexit bus. You know, yeah. we've got migration down to the tens of thousands. We've got, uh, I remember uh, David Cameron, you know, uh, promising a cast iron guarantee to give a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. I mean, that's what fueled the whole UKIP movement and the ultimate. Brexit referendum in the first place was was that original sin of promising something so strongly and so surely and then failing to deliver on it. We've got, you know, the Liberal Democrats uh, tuition fees tuition being fees, abolished yeah. and that was ditched uh, in the course of uh, of power and and even things like, you know, Boris Johnson, you know, promising to build 40 new hospitals. Uh, you know, to the surprise of nobody, that is not going to happen. <laughs> Can someone count them for me, please? Um, so, so actually, there is, there, is a, there is a reality where, mm. uh, where actually quite a lot of, of the manifesto is delivered, or is at least delivered in part, but actually public's perception is dominated by some totemic, you know, value-signalling headline measures... And the bigger the promise, you know, the harder it is to deliver. Yeah. I'm going to add a bit of nerdery at this point, just on manifestos. Oh, we love nerdery. I'm bringing to the table the Salisbury Doctrine, Kirsty. One, <laughs> one of our favourite doctrines, surely. Uh, the Salisbury Doctrine or convention. It's a bit early in the morning for the Salisbury Doctrine, you know. <laughs> this, I haven't this even be- had my breakfast yet. <laughs> <laughs> this <laughs> this basically means <laughs> that major government bills can get through the Lords if the government or when the government of the day has no majority in the Lords. Um, basically, it means, and this is from Parliament.uk, 
it means that the Lords does not try to vote down at second or third reading a government bill that's been mentioned in an election manifesto. And I think that's an interesting quirk in, in the parliamentary system and perhaps a reason to, uh, to jam a manifesto full of things is that it perhaps smooths, smooths things out in the Lords should it be required at some point further down the line. Because basically yesterday when we, you know, we had a quick chat about this is what we wanted to talk about and I started thinking, well, as a journalist, I love an election manifesto because it means I can pin somebody on something. You said you will do this and either you are not doing it or so far you're failing to do it or whatever. Um, but other than that, what is the good of it. Why bother? Well, I suppose that's one reason is our is our Salisbury doctrine that it might kind of smooth the path a little in, yeah, uh, in parliamentary Salisbury, process. You say Salisbury doctrine, I say ping pong. Um, <laughs> yes. Parliamentary ping pong. Um, uh, yeah, look, the, the reality is uh, that um, majoritarian governments by and large get more of their mm. Uh, more of their manifesto through. They find it easy to get a manifesto through, which brings us to an interesting point about Sunak at the moment. Um, and actually, you know, coalition or consensus-driven governments struggle to get things through because mm. obviously there's a price to coalition. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting thought about whether we're going to end up with a hung parliament next year. You know, there's an added dimension here to manifestos that actually there will be, by its very nature some victims of a manifesto as a price of coalition if the Liberal Democrats, you know, choose, you know, in a, in a certain parliamentary arithmetic to, to prop up Labour, there will be some manifesto ditching yeah. uh, to allow that coalition to happen. I mean, Theresa May had to back away from some proposed pension reforms that were in the 2017 manifesto to secure uh, the confidence and supply uh, support of the DUP. That and a billion pounds. Uh, got it <laughs> got it over the line. That's your uh, deal. <laughs> you know, there was there was that too. Um so actually, you know, so so one of the points about um uh you know majoritarian governments is that they can drive things through uh and the stronger the force in the house you know and lords can amend and what have you but actually ultimately the commons is preeminent and and has the ability to force its will mm. um after a after a succession of of ping pongery so so actually you know if people you know, people need to think about what gets in the way of manifestos being delivered and promises being delivered. Because it's not, you know, I know this isn't a popular view, but it's not basically just, as they say, every time a politician opens his mouth, everyone should say, why is this lying bastard lying to me? <laughs> you know, Prime Ministers don't set out to, to make a load of false promises and then break them. That's not what manifestos are about. They are about a platform of values that hopefully speak to people. They are about genuinely held belief that these can be delivered. They are a signal to the civil service about you know, the programme of government and what people can expect. It is an overarching strategy for the next five years of a country and how you shape it. Mm. But things get in the way of that. So, yeah. you know, coalitions get in the way of that. Um, you know, inheriting a, you know, a rebellious and tricksy majoritarian uh, party weirdly gets in the way of that. Uh, events, dear boy, get in the way of that. I mean, I doubt very much... You know, a good deal of the 2019 manifesto will have been delivered because you've had, you know, a big chunk of that being taken up uh, by delivering on Brexit and then a big chunk of the time being, you know, taken up with COVID in the, 
you know the long tail the long policy tail of covid so so actually it's not a desire by politicians to lie to everybody and go ha ha you fools you believe this manifesto <laughs> it is a desire to signal the, the the direction of change but uh i wonder whether we should actually just get back to um, being a little bit more realistic in our manifestos about about what it is, I would like to see manifestos that are more specific, yeah, uh, more realistic in their ambitions. Um, uh, you know, and I I, I say this again because I, I think I've, I've I've mentioned this before. If you go back to the '97 landslide New Labour Tony Blair election. Nobody can remember what was in the manifesto, mm. but everyone can remember that he had five pledges on a little tiny card, <laughs> the size of a credit card, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at those pledges, they are hilariously kind of low key. Um, and all of them, and I went again, did some more research, all of them were delivered. And, you know, no mm, Sherlock, because you know, they, they were pretty low key and they yeah. were like, we will do this and this is how we will do it. I've got some here. Here you go. We will cut class sizes to 30 or under for five, six and seven-year-olds by using money saved from the assisted places scheme. Right. So that one is a classic, right? So on paper, at the time, 24.9% of classes were over the size of 30, right? So almost 25, one in four classes. So it was a big deal at the time. But there are legal exemptions for certain classes to be over 30. If you stripped out all the legal exemptions that allowed classes to be over 30 for certain reasons the proportion that were actually illegally over 30 was 0.2 percent right <laughs> so you know with a little bit of spin um uh, and a very clear policy but it signals something greater than that it signaled the desire to you know reflect people's importance in education and that their child got the best start in life Mm. So it was a very easy to achieve pledge, very small, very specific, absolutely delivered, uh, but it spoke to something wider. And that's the sort of manifestos that I think if you're going to go for brand integrity, uh, there's no point going, you know, we will, you know, we will reduce NHS waiting lists by five million. I mean, I just, you know, when they're at 7.2 million, Mm. I think that is, you know, unachievable. I think you know, great big sweeping statements about, you know, net migration are unachievable because all the pressures on migration are only going to get greater. Um, And actually just saying we will reduce it doesn't cut it either. So then I think you need manifestos where there is a greater level of specificity, there is a greater level of sort of uh, honesty, and you can have an overarching strategy and a narrative for the sort of country you want to build. But when you get into the specificity of what you're promising, it better be specific. It better be like broadly costed, uh, and it you know it better be you know value signalling if you like to the sort. It speaks to a wider truth, but it is it is achievable. Uh, otherwise, people will just eventually just go you know what are the point of these? Yeah, uh, we will uh, take this episode and we will send it to the campaign managers for both sides as they're <laughs> as they're trying up their manifestos. It's really fascinating to consider, and I think take this episode as you listen to it and start applying it to what you hear from here on out. Because you know, by all and to all intents and purposes, we're in the, we're in the thick of this thing already. Pledges here, promises there, people's pledges there, pointing out U-turns on this side and that side, and uh, change of heart on on these sorts of issues. What does this do to speak to what you are going to? to get if you vote for whichever party is under the microscope. Have a little think about what you've learned from Kirsty Buchanan on uh, Whitehall Sources today. Thank you, Kirsty. Really interesting chat. Yeah. 
You're both welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed it. We will return to manifestos, I am sure, at some point in the future and see if these rules and principles are being stuck to. Uh, you can email your thoughts anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, you can send us a message there as well if you like. Make sure you follow and subscribe. If you've liked what you've heard, share it with one of your political nerd friends. Tell them about the Salisbury Convention. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get them going. If you don't want them to be your friends anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and we will drop into your podcast feed, uh, podcast feed uh, every single week. So we will be back with you next Thursday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.